So the last will be first, and the first will be last. These are the words of the generous landowner in this parable. More often than not, we call this parable the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, but maybe it is more correct to call it the parable of the generous employer. And of course, we get that ultimately these are the words not just of that employer in the parable, but also of Jesus. And even so, even if Jesus says it, we still don't much like those words, the last will be first, <clears throat> and the first will be last. Many of us, if not most of us, would have felt more comfortable, if we're being honest, with the words, the first will be first, and the last will be last. That has somehow the ring of fairness from our point of view. We learned this as children, perhaps, especially if we were the youngest children in the family. Over and over again, the older brothers and sisters would uh, tease and prank us and set us up as the one holding the bag when the noise got so loud that the parents came in. And truth in advertising, I need to self-disclose that I was a younger child in my family. So I have some thoughts about this. I have lots of thoughts about this. And often enough, too often in fact, when one or both of my parents did come in to sort things out, the verdict became that I was the one in the wrong, and that's when I would scream, that's not fair! And then came the parental retort, which almost always was, whoever told you that life was fair? A lot of us have benefited from the assumption that the first will be first and the last will be last and that life isn't fair. And if life isn't fair, you're better off being born into a prominent family in a dominant subculture. You're better off positioning yourself at the front of the line. You're better off being the early bird who gets a worm. You're better off being the most diligent worker who gets to the office before anybody else and leaves the office well after everybody else because whoever told you that life is fair? And this is why today's text is so counterintuitive to us. The generous employer needs workers for his vineyard. And so he goes out and he gets the early birds, the ambitious ones, the, the eager ones, yes, but he doesn't stop hiring for the day. Maybe the grapes are at their prime and he's in a pinch to harvest them in as quickly as possible. Whatever is motivating him, he keeps going back to town to bring in more workers at 9 o'clock, at noon, at 3 o'clock, at 5 o'clock. And then when evening comes, those vineyard workers at the end of the line, the ones who've hardly broken a sweat, are not only paid as much as those at the front, they're also paid first. And this is where the grumbling starts about unfairness. But whoever told you that life is fair? The loudest grumbling is coming from the laborers, as you might imagine, who have been out there picking grapes all day long. They're tired, their t-shirts are dripping with sweat, their fingers are purple, and that won't wash out for days. And as the news of their pay sinks in, this is becoming a justice issue. But the employer replied to one of them, writes Matthew, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? 
Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I gave to you. And am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? Literally, in the original Greek, that last question translates, Is your eye evil because I am good? And clearly, the answer to that question is yes. Our eyes are indeed evil because God is good. We are indeed envious because God is generous. It's not that we've been denied. It's not that we've been cheated. It's not that we've received less than what we agreed upon. It is the offensiveness of grace. The fact that grace is a far greater thing than fairness. What makes God offensive has to do with God's generosity to others. Fred Craddock once put it this way, the offense of grace is not in the treatment we receive, but in the observation that others are getting more than they deserve. Forgiveness and generosity do not seem fair. God sends rain on the just and the unjust, the good and the bad, and that often offends some of us. God is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish, and that often offends some of us. The generosity of God quite often cuts across our calculations of who deserves what. For all our talk of grace, the church still has trouble with it. So does the culture. Think about this moment we're in right now with respect to racism in this country. It is as if for a long, long time we haven't moved the needle that much. It astonishes me that maybe, just maybe, we may be finally taking seriously the urgent claims being asserted in these days by the Black Lives Matter movement. These are claims that go back to dehumanizing evils that have been alive in this country since 1619, more than 400 years ago, when the first enslaved Africans arrived in the Virginia colony in 2019, just last year, the 400th anniversary of that arrival, the New York Times developed the 1619 Project as a way of placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of our national narrative. But why has it taken Christians in America, primarily white Christians, so long to finally be taking seriously the urgent claims asserted in these days by the Black Lives Matter movement. Just over 400 years, and too many of us are still ignoring or resisting the notion that racism is our greatest national sin and ought to be our greatest moral project. Because for hundreds of years, so many white Christians have not embodied God's radical grace by advocating against inequity. Why is that? Is it because we just naturally assume that we belong at the front of the line? Not the back of it, not the middle of it, the front of it. If in this loud moment we are still inactive, then I would suggest that it's because we still believe that people don't get what they deserve, they get what they get, 
And whoever said, life is fair. Yes, we still envy God's generosity. We envy God's generosity. And when we see that generosity at work in this parable, it flies in the face of our notions of fairness. We would like to think that fairness is the highest ethic of the universe, this cherished ideal that in this world you ought to get what's coming to you. Even if the world isn't fair, it ought to be fair. There ought to be rules about fairness, about who passes and who fails, about how much a person should earn if they do this work instead of that work, about getting paid more if you work 10 hours in a vineyard instead of just one. But God is not fair. God is not fair. No, God is more than fair. And that's what irritates us about God. You and I don't get what we deserve. And speaking for myself, I'm grateful for that. We don't get what we deserve because just like that generous employer, God is too good, too gracious, too merciful, too loving to give us what we deserve. No, instead, God gives us what in God's sovereign freedom God chooses to give. Just like that generous employer, God refuses to keep track of the hours. Just like that generous employer, God loves you and me not because we are always so eminently lovable, but because love is the very substance of God's nature. God gives not because we deserve to get, but because it is God's nature to be radically gracious. Just ask Jonah, the messenger that God called upon to go to Nineveh, ancient city that was knee-deep in acts and practices that displeased God. Nineveh was a mess. God was upset by its injustices, its oppression of the poor and vulnerable, its lying and immorality and self-righteousness. And so God called upon Jonah, the prophet, to go to Nineveh and tell the people, eyeball to eyeball, the things they were doing that so disappointed God. Jonah had no interest in doing that. In fact, he ran from that assignment. He got passage on a boat headed in the opposite direction from Nineveh. He ran from that assignment, and then a storm blew up, and the boat was about to sink, and the sailors figured out that it was Jonah's presence on that boat that was creating the storm, and they threw him overboard. Luckily, as you know, a big fish swallowed him whole, spewed him out on the shore, and when God asked him once again to go to Nineveh, Jonah had a change of heart. He went to Nineveh. He preached against their unfaithfulness. And lo and behold, the people listened. The king of Nineveh rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He sent out word for the whole population of Nineveh to do the same thing. Everyone was told to fast, no food, no water, even the cows should be covered in sackcloth. The king said, who knows, God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. And that's exactly what God did. God's mind was changed 
about the calamity that had been planned for them, and God did not do it. Then Jonah got really mad, and he went out beyond the edge of town, and he sat there just stewing, just boiling. God sent him a bush to grow over him and give him shade. And then God appointed a worm to attack the bush so that it withered. And then the sun came out and beat on his head until Jonah wanted to die. God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be so angry about the bush? And Jonah said, Yes, angry enough to die. Then God said, You're concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, not to mention all these cows? That's another picture of God's sovereign freedom, this God who is not fair, but is far more than fair, the one who loves even the unlovable, not because they earn it, but because it is God's business to love. That's the way God loves even all those cows. I have a friend, Michael Linval, who recently retired from long service at the Brick Presbyterian Church in Manhattan's Upper East Side. Some good while ago now, he shared a story about an associate pastor who came to him once with a request. She was preaching on this text before us today at an early morning communion service. Michael was preaching at the 11 o'clock service on the same text, but she wanted to apply the generosity of this text in a special way at that communion service. She understood, said Michael, the power of unspoken gesture. And she asked him for his blessing for her to do something a little unusual at that service. When I pour the wine from the pitcher into the chalice, she said, I would like to pour and pour and pour until the cup overflows. She wanted to pour that wine out until it dripped off the communion table and onto the floor. Michael said, yes, of course. That sounds like a beautiful gesture. And it got Michael to thinking. Let's reason out the implications of all of this, he wrote later. If the cup overflows whether we deserve the wine or not, if everybody gets paid for a whole day, even if they got there at five, if everybody in class gets A's and all the professors get tenure, if it's true that Christ died for the crooks, the phonies, and the fools, if God loves me no matter what, what incentive is there to virtue? Why should I work hard at anything? Why should I strive to be honest? Why should I love? Why should I give anything to anybody else? And then he began to answer his own questions. At the heart of our faith, he went on, there lies the radical trust that God's Spirit works in us and changes us. And this work is not accomplished so much by fear, nor threat, nor even by reward, but rather that God works on us and in us by love. Listen. 
once you understand that life is a gift, once you understand that every day is a grace, once you sense this, something happens inside. Something may change and you may love, not because you know you're supposed to, but perhaps because you know that you are loved. Something changes and perhaps you show mercy, not because it's the rule, but because you know how deep is the mercy that has been shown you. Something happens and perhaps you give, give of yourself, give of what you possess, not because everybody has to do their fair share, but because you know that in the end, all is a gift. All is a gift. All is a gift. In the name of God, Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit, amen.